Delightful Answers. I'm Alison Southwick, joined as always by Robert Call Me Buck Brocamp. This week, Ron Gross joins us to talk about when to sell a stock, what to do when your 401k stinks, asset allocation and Roth IRAs for the kiddos, all that and more on this week's episode of Molly Full Answers. It's the mailbag episode. And bro, who do we have joining us this month? Fellow Tampa Bay Buccaneer fan, Ron Gross. Dun, 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 dun. What a pleasure it is to be here with you two on this auspicious occasion. Uh, yeah, I don't know if our listeners know this, but bro, you are like, as as our resident awfulizer, you know how to pick a football team. How are you feeling <laughs> that like your team is actually winning? I know. I mean, as, as a Bucks fan since the 70s and is and had, at periods been among the worst pro football teams in history, Oof. it's so nice to be back in the Super Bowl. First time ever that a Super Bowl is being played in the town where one of the participants is playing. Yes. Yeah, very very exciting. exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And Ron is a fan as well. Yeah, there you so go. It's gonna be it's gonna be a fun day. So that's all the sports talk you're gonna get on Motley Fool Answers <laughs> for the next five years. We're gonna get into the questions then. So our first one comes from Wayne. I am a recent subscriber, and I need a good framework for when I should sell a stock. What resources are there for me? Me? That's the resource. What more resources <laughs> do you Ron. need than the Motley Fool? Um, there, you you can actually Google, as I did um, in preparation for the show. Believe it or not, I did prepare. Um, you can actually Google that, and there's the, lots of various articles will come up from from really um, well w- widely respected organizations, and we have published quite a bit on this as well. And there's a bunch of reasons um, why you would want to sell a stock. Um, I'll, I'll I picked five to highlight, um, but there, the list is goes on and on. The, f- the first one for me is. If your thesis is broken or, or if the reason that you originally bought the stock no longer exists, that, that might be a time where you would say, okay, <clears throat> I no longer believe in this company or where it's going or what it's doing and, and I want out. Um, if you need the money for another purpose is, is a perfectly fine time to sell. For example, many folks, when it's time to buy their home, their first home, their second home, whatever it may be, their summer home even um, would liquidate uh, stocks and sell to raise money. Uh, thirdly, if the stock is very overvalued, I think it's fine um, to take profits and sell. Now, if you're not following the companies close enough to know when a company um, is very overvalued, this might be kind of a dicey one, and you would have to kind of go go again to the internet to see what some other folks, including the Motley Fool, are saying. Don't focus too much on valuation, but there is there does come a time where a stock price has gotten so high that your future returns will probably not be what you hoped they would be, and that's a fine time to sell. Two more quick. If a new CEO, if you're not happy with the direction that he or she is going to be taking the company, um, other senior management team in the C-suites, as we say, the executive suites, if you don't like something about their background or, or where they seem to want to take this company, that's a perfectly fine time to sell. And then finally, if a position has become too large a part of your portfolio, the allocation is just too high a percentage, uh, there's too much risk involved in that, you're not sleeping at night because of that, that's a fine time to pair back. You don't necessarily need to sell all of the stock, but certainly you could sell some, pair that position back to a more manageable size that matches your kind of risk uh, tolerance and uh, you can sleep way better each evening. 
Yeah, and I'll just add that for the people who invest in actively managed mutual funds, you should certainly see if they're beating their benchmark over the past three to five years. So that would be a reason to sell. And if, since this person did mention that they're a Motley Fool subscriber, just pay attention to the emails you get. And I know you get a lot of emails, but every service will tell you when to sell something or whether it's been moved from super duper buy to a lesser buy or something like that. You just have to stay on top of that. I've come across many situations where members still holding on to a company that the service recommended be sold just because they missed that sell recommendation. Our next question comes from Ronald. I'm 40 with probably 30 plus years until retirement. I'm obviously in the growth part of my investing life, but with millions of other people retiring or planning to retire soon, would using a part of my portfolio to invest in strong dividend paying companies be smart? I would assume that as the retired and soon-to-be-retired start moving their money into these safer investments, that would create more demand for these stocks. Am I thinking too much or not enough? Well, uh, Ronald, Ron and I are the co-advisors of Total Income, which is a service of The Motley Fool. uh, And every recommendation in that service, every stock recommendation, pays a dividend. That's because it is for people who are looking for income, and dividend-paying stocks are a good place for that. I would say if you are farther from retirement and you're not looking for income, I would focus more on just finding good companies and then uh, worry less about whether they're paying a dividend or not. That said, a dividend that is consistent and growing is a good sign of a good company. It means it's cash flow positive. Uh, Dividends impose a certain amount of discipline on management. So you could certainly look at dividend uh, if it's growing consistently and and above average at above average rate that's a good sign um, as for the the theory that there'll be even greater demand for these as more people retire I think we're already seeing that the stat you've probably heard is that 10,000 baby boomers retire every day so there is already this demand for income producing investments um, you'll see that yields generally are actually a below average these days. Um, so I would say we've already reached that point where a lot of people are retiring and want demand from these types of investments. Um, that said, over the last few years, growth type investments have been more popular. So I would say some of these dividend paying companies are probably a little cheaper right now. This is funny. I actually answered this exact same question on this week's episode of Motley Fool Money. So I guess um, Ronald asked it in two places. So the, the hope, I hope we we you would get a complete answer and, and <laughs> combine both. The only thing I'll add is um, when you think of buying dividend stocks, always keep your eye on a total return of a company. So that's the appreciation potential plus the dividend yield, because that's really what should be driving your investment decision, not just whether a company is yielding 2 or 3%. Uh, some great places to look for companies that have generally generated nice total returns are the dividend aristocrats. You can just Google that. And those are companies uh, in the S&P 500 that have increased their dividends for 25 consecutive years. And they're household names like Johnson & Johnson, Procter & Gamble, Target, Walmart, um, companies that have both produced nice dividend yields and stock price appreciation over the years. Our next question comes from Eric. I subscribe to the long-term buy-and-hold investment style. Well, Eric sounds like our type of person here. I have about 50% of my portfolio in various low-fee ETFs, 40% spread across about 20 individual stocks, many are Motley Fool picks, and 10% in cash. I've been following this allocation for about six years and have had market-beating returns. My question is, 
how do I convince my wife to stay the course with the investment plan? She is generally more risk averse than I am and has been reading a bunch of articles that say stocks are in a bubble, sell everything now, and you have to be stupid to buy stocks in 2021. When I tell her that trying to time the market usually doesn't work, she says we should sell everything and then slowly buy back in the, over the next 12 months. I am not articulate enough or knowledgeable enough to fully explain the pros and cons of lump sum versus dollar cost averaging in this way. Given her risk averse nature, my argument of losing potential gains does not overcome her argument of limiting potential losses. How do I convince her to stay the course and ride through the volatility? Feel free to tell me I am wrong and she is right. <laughs> well, I would never do that. Um, I'm married as well. I'm not going there. Um, there's a lot to unpack here. Um, and there's a lot of studies that um, will tell you why market timing is not a good idea. And it's because it's too difficult to get right. I'll just talk about one. Over the last 20 years, missing out on the 40 best days in the market would have resulted in a triple digit percentage loss. So in other words, if an investor on average missed just the two best trading days each year over the 20-year period, would, returns would go from very positive to very negative. So you, you need to be in the market to get captured those good days and suffer through the bad ones. Um, but if you own good stocks that you're proud of and you're happy to own, you should be able to ride through the tough times. Look what happened in March um, of, of 2020. It was a, a disaster. But if you held on, you're perfectly fine right now. And maybe even uh, had some cash on the sidelines to put to work um, when things were cheaper. Uh, so you'll never hear me advocating for a market timing strategy. Um, it's too difficult to get right. If we could get it right, I guess I would say, go ahead, do it. But it's just too difficult. You'll end up missing out on more upside. Now, I will just say one more thing about risk tolerance. It sounds to me like, as, as you, you say, your wife is, is has less risk tolerance than you. And so as a team, you really should get together and decide what kind of tolerance you have as, as a partnership, and then maybe adjust your allocations. Maybe you want to hold more cash. Maybe you want to hold something other than equities like bonds, although they're not super duper right now, but just something that would lower that risk tolerance so you both can sleep at night and yet both be invested and growing for the future. I've said this before, and it may not be appropriate in this situation, but if you as a couple disagree about anything about money, investing or otherwise, that might be a good time just to have a check-in with a fee-only financial planner, uh, because that way it takes the, the it's not a decision about you versus her, but you have a, an objective professional there in the middle. And, and the professional hopefully will not only have a typical financial planning answer, but have some experience with sort of navigating these things between spouses um, ideally, and one solution with spouses too is that each spouse has a little bit of money to spend. We've, we've talked about that before. It might make sense that each spouse has a little bit of money to invest too, and that each person has their own account and they can do whatever they want without the other spouse judging it. Yeah. And I'm trying to think like, what, what would work on me if I was reading all these articles that said, you know, don't buy stocks, stocks are going to crash. And I wonder if it's about explaining that how long they're going to be invested for, right? Like, and the people who are writing those articles are writing articles more for traders, more for short-term thinkers, more for people who are like, yeah, maybe they shouldn't buy stocks over the next 12 months. 
but it's a different audience. Like she may be reading articles that say only stocks are for suckers, but that's more for an audience that's more short-minded, traders, people like that. Whereas if they're holding these stocks for five, 10 years, he can just pull out a chart of the stock market for its history and see like, if you hold these stocks for five to 10 years, this is where, this is where we're headed. And that article, those articles aren't about us. They're not for us. They're not about us. They're not going to help us. Yeah. And if, if, if you look at a long-term chart, as you just suggested, the real bad times look like just a blip in time. Because yeah, the whole, the exactly. whole thing is up and to the right, which is the beauty of the stock market. Now, when you're living through those tough times, I know it hurts and it's scary and it feels pretty rough. But just take the wider, long-term historical perspective and it'll make you feel much better. Yeah, because I mean, if you look at the chart, you are going to see there are going to be those times. And at some point, you know, before this couple retires – there is going to be a time when stocks are down 30, 40, 50%. That time is going to come. So whether it's this year or not, it's going to come. And they have to find some sort of middle ground, as Ron was suggesting, where they're both going to be comfortable because at some point that, that, that day is going to come. Our next question comes from Nate. In a previous episode, Bro made reference to, quote, stinky 401ks. Could he please elaborate on what would make a 401k fall in this category? Mine is Roth 401k. Is that one of the criteria? Thought it's not so bad to have at the moment, given the current low tax environment. Also, stocks! (laughs) That still makes me laugh. Thank you, Nate. Uh, All right. Yes. So who's got the stinky camembert 401k? What does that mean, Bro? Well, so your 401k, the quality of your 401k really comes down to three things, costs, investments, and features. So it costs more to run a 401k than just to go somewhere and open an IRA or just a regular brokerage account. And the question then is who's covering those costs? If you have an excellent employer, the employer is covering almost all of them. But there are employers, in fact, most employers have sort of a cost sharing arrangement and some employers put most of the cost on the employees. So that's the number one thing to look at. Who's paying for the administrative costs? It could be just an annual dollar fee, or it could be uh, a percentage of your account. So talk to your HR department and see who's paying for that. And then there are the investments within the 401k. Um, hopefully, you have a good menu of 15 to 25 low-cost mutual funds, index funds, actively managed funds that beat their benchmarks. And then the third part is the features. And the features can be the Roth. So having Roth is great. About 70% of of 401ks offer the Roth, but not all do. Another great feature is the side brokerage account that allows you to invest in individual stocks, other ETFs, other mutual funds, maybe 15 to 20% allow that. And you can always just ask for those. Go to your HR department, maybe get some of your colleagues together and say, you know what, we'd love to have this feature in our plan. It may not even cost more to your employer. So just go ahead and ask it. So those are the three criteria. If you have a, a plan where the employer is covering most or all the costs, you have good investments and you have good features, you have a good plan. We did get a tweet um, on the Twitters. I just said that like the <laughs> oldest woman in America. Uh <laughs> Where so uh, someone was basically saying, one of our listeners was saying, Listen, I work for a massive employer. Can I really, like, am I really going to be able to have an impact on my company's 401k? And they were just very skeptical that, that you could actually change the way your company's doing things. Yeah. And I, I, that's certainly understandable. The good thing is, some of the best 401ks are from the big employers because they have negotiating leverage. So when they go to a Fidelity or a Vanguard or whomever, they can negotiate lower fees because they're bringing in more assets. 
So ideally, like uh, the great example is the, the federal TSP thrift savings plan. You will not find lower cost investment choices than what you find in the federal plan because it is the biggest employer in the country. So hopefully this person's already in a good situation. But I will say, and I've talked about this before, HR folks, great folks, but they're not necessarily investment pro- professionals or experts. So they may not even be aware of the benefits of having the side brokerage account. So maybe you could get some people together and just talk to them about it and just educate them a little bit more. Our next question comes from Mark. I just signed up for Motley Fool Premium and I'm loving it. Yay! Thank you for putting sandwiches on my kid's plate there, Mark. I appreciate it. All right. For an entry-level investor like me with a limited amount to invest, would you suggest I buy at least one share of every stock that Tom and David currently own or purchase more of the individual companies that my limited knowledge and time-constrained research of their picks allow? Good question. We get similar questions to this a lot about how best to use our services. And of course, this is somewhat personal preference, but I don't think I would look to buy every stock recommended. There, there's simply too many of them, especially um, in Motley Fool Premium. It's a, lo- it's a long list. So I think it makes sense to focus on if you, if you, this is a little inside baseball, but if you go to the, that site and you look at our performance, you'll see a whole list of all the stocks recommended. And then I think you can focus on the ones that have the label starter. Those are starter stocks where we recommend it's in a kind of a nice way to start your portfolio. Um, it creates a nice little base. Um, and that's a perfect way to start buying some stocks. And then you can look at the, the um, stocks that are labeled now. And that stands for best buys now. So that's the stocks that we feel are the best ones to buy this month. And the best buys now get updated each month. And you can take a look at, at what we're saying and, and, and pick and choose from those lists each month. And then Lastly, I think maybe take a look at the last several months of latest recommendations, our newest recommendations, and see if any of those resonate with you. Um, Airbnb would be a good example of a new stock that, that is a recent recommendation, which which may resonate with you because you're a user of it or you like where, where it's going. Um, and so between the starter stocks, the best buys now, and the recent recommendations, I think you'll have plenty to choose from and you don't need to go and, and put money into every single recommendation. And I'll just add, as someone who's a big fan of diversification, you, you would also want to complement whatever you're buying with what you already own, whether individual stocks or actively managed mutual funds. I was reading an article on uh, the other day about the S&P 500, how it's now more concentrated than it's ever been since 1980. And if you buy a share of the S&P 500, 77% of it is Apple. And at no point since 1980 has one company made up so much of the index. So if you have already a lot of money in the S&P 500 index fund, you may not want to then buy additional shares of Apple, just as an example. Our next question comes from Rich. We've had a Ronald, and then we got a Ron. Now we got a Rich for our Rick. What is the best way to start a Roth IRA for my early, mid-20s children with some inheritance money I received? Do I have to gift the money to them and leave it to them to open an account and make the investments with my advice? Or is there some way for me to have more control of the process and the investment choices? Well, very kind of you for uh, helping out your kids get started on their retirement. Uh, just as a reminder to, uh, that it, to open or at least contribute to an IRA, you have to have earned income. So ideally, your kids are working and making enough money so that you can contribute that $6,000 or whatever you're going to put it in. But $6,000 is the limit for this year if, if you're under 50. Um, you can open up and manage someone else's IRA. You need a limited power of attorney. So you could just call the brokerage that you're interested in and say, listen, I'm going to 
open and manage this account for my kids? What POA is what they'll call it? What POA form do I need to do that? I will say that when my wife and I opened an IRA for my son, based off the income year and being a lifeguard, we kind of just did it ourselves. He just signed the application form, but we we did it. We sent the check in. Our names were on the check. They didn't care was our, with our name on the check. Uh, and then we helped him choose investments and stuff like that. But if you actually want to be able to log into the account legally and manage the account, you will need some sort of a power of attorney. All right. Our next question comes from Robert. Hey, we had a Ron, we had a Richard, now we got a Robert. I hope there's an Allison question coming up here soon. I may have to make one up myself. All right. Robert writes, I started purchasing your recommended stocks in March. I figured it was now or never with the market decline. I never had been confident buying individual stocks, even after investing for over 40 years in mutual funds. Since March, I've bought about 50 of your recommendations. My question is, should I reduce that amount to 10 or 15? I'm really confident in your research and would hate to sell any of them, but listening to one of your podcasts, it was recommended that the best way to get maximum growth is to not diversify too much. A counterintuitive approach, but it makes sense. Ron, does it make sense? Well, I do agree that diversifying too much is not a great strategy for two two main reasons that come to mind. Um, First, it's hard to keep up with all of the companies that you own if that is something you desire to do or you like to do. Um, And I recommend at least peripherally being aware of how your companies are doing that are in your portfolio. The second thing is that the more stocks you own, as you approach 100, 200 stocks, you start to have performance that is more like the stock market as a whole. Um, And you start to mirror the indexes that hopefully we're all trying to beat, like the S&P 500, for example. Now, specifically, I don't think you have a problem with 50 stocks. You're not going to get into that kind of indexing um, by mistake situation with 50 stocks. So, I don't have a problem with that. Um, Just keep in mind, I do think as you get closer to the 150 mark, you start to kind of diversify some of that stock picking, you know, extra special sauce out of the mix. Um, 50 seems fine to me. Um, counter the other side of that question, pairing back down to 10 or 15, I think 10 is too little. If, if, um, if somebody wanted to do that, we typically say 15 or more stocks will provide you some nice diversification. Lately, to be honest, we've been talking more in the line of around 25 stocks even um, is perfectly fine. And again, 50, I, I'm probably around somewhere 50 myself. I haven't counted. Um, I think that's perfectly fine. And you're not, you're not in any danger of diversifying, as they say. All right. Our next question comes from Benjamin. You keep talking about getting an emergency fund, and I am working my way toward having three to six months worth of funds saved in cash. I have a whole life insurance policy in my name, and the cash value is a few thousands of dollars that I can borrow at any time without surrendering the policy. I was wondering, could I apply the insurance funds as a backup for my emergency fund since I can access the cash anytime? For example, if I have saved 3000 in cash and the whole life policy allows me to access the cash of 3000 doesn't that give $6,000 of an emergency fund? Or should I just pretend the funds in the whole life policy are off limits? If either of you are ever in Dallas, please let me know and I can recommend some good barbecue places to you. Oh, yeah. Mm. We did that I'm with Austin. On, I'm coming on that road trip. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we did. That. We went to Austin and just ate our way through all the barbecue places in Austin. So maybe awesome. we need to try Dallas, too. All right. What do you think, bro? So I like the way Benjamin is thinking. So first of all, I would say he needs to start to think about uh, how big of an emergency he has to worry about and what an emergency means to him. And 
the way to think about it really is if something happens to him, like he loses his job, if he's young, if he's single, if he can move back in with his parents, he's probably going to be okay. It's a lot different if you're married, you have kids, you have a mortgage, you have car payments, then you need more of an emergency fund. I like the idea of thinking of an emergency fund beyond your cash um, and maybe a little bit of the cash value life insurance policy. There are um, more and more financial planners are looking for these things like what they what they would call buffer assets. They would also throw home equity into that because so, you can get a home equity loan if you need it or a reverse mortgage if you're over 62. Just be aware of the consequences of borrowing the money from anything, but in this case, life insurance. And that is, you borrow the money. That's great. It's called a loan, but you don't have to. You know, you don't have to get approved or anything. It's your money. Interest rates are low-ish generally. Um, the thing is, you have to know that if you don't pay it back, there are consequences. So that could be the policy lapse and lapses, and you no longer have life insurance. That's a problem. Um, if the policy lapses and uh, depending on how much money you took out, some of that could be taxable, that cash value. Um, and if you don't pay it back and you pass away, uh, that loan will be taken out from the death benefit to your heirs. So while I think it is a fine idea to think about these things as backup assets, if you need them, just be aware of the consequences. I and mean, the problem about with thinking, I'll just borrow some money from anything if I'm in dire financial straits is, if you're in dire financial straits, how are you going to pay that money back? And if you can't pay it back, what are the consequences? So that's what I think you just have to be aware of. Bro, do you recommend that people um, that own a home always have that line of credit, that HELOC, uh, home equity line of credit, already established, even if they don't intend to tap it, just in case they need quick access to cash or is that, is that too much? So I don't, I don't recommend it, but I don't see a problem with it. I know people do it. Um, it the reason why you would do that is because it, there, I think some people are worried about, uh, I would want that if I lost my job, but then if I lose my job, it's hard to get a loan. But because the house serves as the collateral for the loan, it's actually not that difficult. But I certainly don't have a problem with people doing it. Just be aware of the costs of taking out the loan. And there are usually are some costs to being approved and establishing that line of credit. Great. Next question comes from Jack. I am currently a junior at Penn State University pursuing a double major in finance and economics. Well, look at the big brain on Jack. <laughs> we are. <laughs> My question is, what is the optimal asset allocation for a 20-year-old? I keep up with the stock market a lot and follow a ton of companies. I just do not know what the best stock bond ETF index fund allocation would be for me right now. I have about $22,000. i am going to start to invest within the next few weeks. Oh, it's so sweet when they start young. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I, I love this question, Jack, and I love that you're getting in early. It's 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 really wonderful to see. Bro, you, you might know more than me on this one, so check me on this. I personally, again, I'm not a financial planner. I'm, I'm more of a research stock picker kind of guy, but I personally would like to see a 20-year-old in 100% equities. Um, I'm personally indifferent as to whether that's ETFs or individual stocks. I think a combination makes perfect sense. I have a combination in my own portfolio. Um, and the one thing that I thought maybe, bro, you could speak to here as well is that since he does seem to have some income coming in, maybe a Roth IRA as, as the vehicle for some of that $22,000, 
uh, would make sense so that can grow tax deferred. But uh, I think he's uh, thinking about this perfectly right and he's in the game really early and it's great to see. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, the great thing about the Roth IRA, um, again, you do have to have the income to contribute. Uh, but even though it's for retirement, if you want the money you put in out at some point before retirement, that comes out tax penalty free. It's the earnings that might be tax and penalized if you take it out sooner. Um, I'm all f- I'm fine with 100% stock allocation for a young person as long as they have the more you know more than three to five years before they need it. If he's if he's investing this money to buy a car in the next year, I would feel differently. Uh, and like you, my, my portfolio is a mix of individual stocks, ETFs index funds and actively managed funds. So really it's a it's a it's a matter of how if the more he's willing to stay on top of companies and he believes in companies and it sounds like he is, you could have all individual stocks as far as I'm concerned. Next question comes from Mike. I took a CARES Act distribution, $30,000, from my employer retirement account, a 457 plan at Fidelity. I chose not to have any taxes withheld by Fidelity. I made sure that I did not take enough to push me into a higher tax bracket. I know I will need to pay taxes on the distribution and intend to do that over three years as allowed. How does the mechanics of this work? I assume Fidelity will send me some type of form to the IRS showing that I got a $30,000 distribution. Do I simply add one third of $30,000, $10,000 to my income when I file my 2020 federal taxes and do that when filing for 2021 and 2022? I assume also there will be some form to fill out, but I have not yet found any website that discuss a form to fill out. Will there be a form to fill out? He's just, the man's looking for a form, bro. <laughs> Help him out. Well, Mike, uh, interestingly enough, the IRS, probably one of the reasons maybe that there's no form is that the IRS is behind and they've already announced that normally you can start, they start processing tax returns by late January. Like, so you could submit your tax return for 2020 now and expect them to look at it very soon. They've already said they're not going to be accepting tax returns until February 12th, but that doesn't mean the tax deadline has been moved. You still have only until April 15th to file your taxes. Um, They still have like 7 million um, returns from last year they still haven't processed. Uh, And those, by the way, are all paper returns. So you definitely want to be filing electronically this year because they are so behind in, in processing uh, fi- uh, paper returns. So I would say this. First of all, Fidelity is going to tell Uncle Sam that you got the distribution. You'll receive probably a 1099R. I think you'll be fine just doing, like you said, just reporting the $10,000 this year, $10,000 the next year, $10,000 the next, because that's, as the CARES Act says, you can do that. You might want to call Fidelity because they're pretty much on top of these things and see if they if, if they plan to send a special type of, of thing to you. But certainly once you file your taxes, the tax return, you know, whether you're using an online tax return or a paper form, there will be some new place to indicate that you took a CARES Act distribution. And I'll just remind you that you have three years to return the money if you change your mind. So even if you filed your taxes this year, say you took, you know, you're paying taxes on $10,000 of it, but then later on you put the $30,000, you can do an amended return and get that money back that you paid taxes on that distribution. All right. Our last question comes from uh, Cameron, not Allison. <laughs> All right. Here we go. I've been investing for about a year. Although I'm doing well, I'm still confused when it comes to buying stocks. Which is more important, the number of shares you buy or the amount of money you invest in a stock? And why? All right, Ron, bring us home. 
<laughs> we get this question a lot, actually. The number of shares should never be the focus. Just put that out of your mind. The only thing that matters is the amount of money you put into an investment. It doesn't matter if the $1,000 you're putting into a stock is spread over five shares or 20 shares. The $1,000 of capital that you commit is the only thing that matters. That's the only thing that will you'll generate your rate of return based on when you do the math. The number of shares is completely out of the picture. Uh, you don't do better if you have a lot of shares or worse if you have fewer shares. It's just about the amount of money you put into an investment. And, and I'll say the reverse of it because we'll sometimes get questions. Like, well, what if I, I want to buy a stock, but I only have enough money to buy a partial share, a fraction of a share? Does that mean I'm not going to benefit as much? And the same is true. It doesn't matter whether you have a half a share or 100 shares. If that stock goes up 10%, you'll still make that same return. Yeah, and in the in the old days, you couldn't actually buy a fractional share, but now many brokerages, um, mainstream brokerages, allow you to do so. So you can buy a quarter of Amazon or a half a share of Apple, um, and and become an owner of that company, even though the the price per share in the old days it would have kind of been prohibitive, and you wouldn't have been able to do that. So now it's a pretty exciting thing that you can uh, become an owner of those companies that have uh, share prices that are high. All right, hey, let's have a disclaimer. The legal wants me to say that uh, The Motley Fool may have recommendations, formal recommendations for or against the stocks we talked about on the show. Don't buy and sell stocks based solely on what you heard here. Ron Gross, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Go Bucks. Thanks, guys. <laughs> we'll have you back soon. Let's not have it be so long, huh? All right. Sounds good. All right. Well, that's the show. It's edited by Tom Brady. No, I'm just kidding. We still have Rick here. We didn't replace him. Are you kidding? The show is always Lee, edited by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Mm-hmm.